Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those who want a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. We're continuing our study of Daniel. We have seen the fall of Babylon. We have talked about the trials that Daniel had to endure, obviously the most famous one, uh, the lion's den. We've talked about that there actually may have been two instances that poor Daniel was tossed in that lion's den and how it connected to a prophet who was 700 miles away at the time. All very fascinating and it shows the omnipresence and the love of the Lord, no matter where you are or what you're suffering through, if you turn to him, he can help you. Daniel should be an inspiration to us all, and now he is going to witness a new empire. His vision told of four beasts, and the third one is about to rise. Uh, This is a leopard with four heads. Reed, can we talk about what happens after the Persians? Let's do. The Persians conquered the world. And they really met their match when they started to conquer Greece. 
Now, the Greeks were into city-states and lived, they had kings, but they were a little more into ruling by the consent of the people that they were ruling with. A wonderful concept compared to the absolute tyrant kings the world had seen before that. Well, and the Persians wanted to control Greece, and the Greeks didn't want to be controlled. So they would fight back from time to time, but it was pretty bad. It was, it was rough. And King Philip II of Macedon, which was one of the Greek states, did what he could to try and build up some kind of a campaign and had some plans to help stop the Persians. He had a couple of sons, the most famous one being Alexander III, who we are going to come to discover that history will call Alexander the Great. Philip II was married to a woman named Olympias, and she didn't get along so well with Philip. They kind of had a rocky marriage, and we believe that she actually had him murdered. Oh. Now, she adored Alexander. Everybody loved Alexander. Apparently, he was, according to records, quite an attractive young man. He was the typical golden all-American, as we might say. He had this golden reddish hair. They say he had these blue-green eyes, and then he was really good-looking. He was very charming, and it was sort of infectious. All the men wanted to be around him, and all the women wanted to be his wife. Olympias told her son Alexander that he was actually the son of Zeus, and that the god Zeus had come down from heaven one night, and that he had impregnated her, and that was how Alexander was born. So don't feel so bad about this crummy father you think is yours, Philip, because he's dead and we are glad he's gone. She was a tough woman. Their marriage was rocky. There were a lot of fights, the ancients say, between Philip and Olympias. He didn't back down, she didn't back down, and poor Alexander was caught in the middle of it. Just as an aside, do you think he started these wars just to get away from this? Well, we're going to talk about why he started the wars, because that is the great mystery. Why did Alexander, who was a prince and then became a king and was beloved of his people, why did he decide to take on the world's most powerful empire? What was his motivation? We're going to talk about that. That is a wonderful question. In the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted, he saw the torso of brass. And as Reed has helped us understand, this was to mean the new empire that was about to rise the Greeks. So I'm here in your book, Daniel. We're in chapter 7. It's called The Abs of Brass, Alexander of Macedon. It is said that being very handsome and very Greek, he enjoyed strutting around half or entirely naked. The Greeks prided themselves on being made in the image of the gods, male and female. Their gods were muscled and strong, curvy and beautiful, and so they tried to emulate them physically. A tanned midsection is a surprising apt symbol for the young Alexander and the Greek way of life. Furthermore, it was the Greeks who first introduced the muscle breastplate as a form of heroic male armor to the world stage. It was often cast to fit the wearer's torso, but more specifically, turned the warrior into a very heroic statue, mimicking an idealized strong male physique. It was a form of heroic nudity, and as such was thought to inspire terror in the enemy. You know, trying to put on my eastern eyes, to have these men that shine, and though they, from a distance, look naked, they're actually completely armored and intimidating. So, like you said, not only were they coming, but they looked really strong. It was all the chest and the, and the abs that they would do, and they'd wear their, their robes and their plumed helmets that were either horses' manes or were like rooster combs. The idea was to inspire the rough masculinity, 
and to terrify the enemy in the field. So then, what did Alexander actually want? Because he ended up taking on the most important empire of his day, and he conquered. It's an amazing story, and as you read Alexander's history, it doesn't talk about these things. It does hint that maybe he was trying to impress a father that was very tough. Philip was a tough man, and that maybe Alexander felt inferior to him and was trying to impress him. It talks about maybe trying to prove to his mother that he was better than his father and was worthy of the kingship of Macedon and possibly all Greece. These type of things. But what's wonderful is we actually have Alexander's motivation in his own words. I think that would be the best way to get right at what he was after is read it in his own words. It's really amazing, and you'll see why history leaves it out, because it actually once again goes to the moral that we're learning in Daniel, that Jehovah is the God of this earth, and that he is in charge. The missing story that we have that doesn't ever get into the movies or into the books that are secular goes like this. Alexander's father had been planning a campaign against Darius, who was the emperor of Persia, as we know, for some time. When he was assassinated at a wedding feast, Alexander took the throne, and he rallied his men and most of Greece and began his famous campaign to conquer the world that we know. Alexander's attacks were daring, brilliant, and risky, and he would frequently lead at the head of his army, rushing into battle with no thought for his own safety. The odds are that he should have been killed many times. But Alexander believed that God was on his side. Oh, that is interesting. So he he had faith. He believed he was called of God to do what he did. Now, there's many wonderful and incredible stories about his attacks, his strategy, and the way he would run a battle. Some of them are famous and even used today in battles, and you can certainly study all those. But I want to jump forward as he's conquering to his conquering of the island city of Tyre. It's one of his most amazing feats. Tyre sat on the coast of Lebanon near Sidon, about a mile off the shore, and it was believed to be unconquerable. There was a temple on the island dedicated to Hercules, whom Alexander believed was one of his ancestors. Alexander had a queer obsession to worship and seek out the gods of every people he conquered. No one could figure out why he wanted to do this. When the lords of Tyre refused to let him enter the city and worship at the temple, Alexander was furious. Realizing that there was no way to take Tyre by sea, Alexander ordered his men to build a causeway of dirt out into the ocean. It seemed absolutely insane. A mile-long causeway back then. I mean, now we have trucks and bulldozers and cement mixers, but they would have had to bucket dirt and rocks by hand Into the ocean. (laughs) Depending how deep it was between that and the island, wow. Well, his men did it. Shovelful by shovelful, they threw dirt, starting at the coast, into the ocean. It took seven months, but they did build a land bridge all the way from the coast to the island city of Tyre. Unbelievable. It is still there today. If you'll get on the internet and search for Tyre, you'll see that the causeway still connects the island of Tyre to the coast to this very day. Wow. It is still there. As the lords of Tyre saw Alexander's army getting closer, they panicked and they sued for peace, but it was too late. Alexander would only ask an Easterner once to obey him, and if they refused, they were dead. It was during this campaign against Tyre that Alexander wrote a letter to Judah, the Jewish high priest who was at Jerusalem at the time, asking him to send supplies for his army as well as any tribute or gifts that he was going to send to Darius. 
The high priest replied that he had sworn an oath to Darius never to bear arms against him, and he could not violate his sacred oath. Alexander was furious. He decided that after he crushed Tyre, he would then go crush Jerusalem and make them pay with their lives for disobeying him. That was the pattern. Alexander did destroy Tyre. Then word came to Jerusalem that Alexander was coming, and the Jews were seized with terror. They had been through so much since Nebuchadnezzar had conquered them. They had finally gotten back into Jerusalem, and now here comes Alexander. And no one can stop him. No one can stop him. Being a good high priest, what did Judah do? Well, I hope if they followed the tutelage and teachings of Daniel, they would have fasted and prayed. They did. They did. Judah got on his knees and went right to Jehovah and said, we are in real trouble. He gathered the city together and in deep repentance and humility offered sacrifices. He pled with the Lord to protect the people and deliver them from the perils that were coming. And the Lord sent a dream. He was to take courage, the Lord said, and he was to adorn the city as if it were a bride waiting to receive her husband. They were to open the gates and dress in their white garments of worship and thanksgiving. And he and all the priests were to dress in their temple robes and go out and meet Alexander at the gate of Jerusalem. So instead of hunkering down to fortify the city, instead of sending out their troops to meet him in the open field of battle, they opened the doors to they Alexander. Did. And dressed in their royal priesthood robes, God said they were not to act afraid and they were not to be afraid, but they were to open the city gates. Wow. So Judah awoke and he rejoiced. And he quickly went to the people and said, this is what we're going to do. Let's make all the preparations. Now, here's where the story is so wonderful and so interesting. This is the part that is the key to understanding Alexander. And it's the part that the historians in Hollywood will never tell you. Possibly because they don't know. Maybe. Or maybe they don't like this part. <laughs> that is, that's possible, too. Let's continue. You bet. At Alexander's approach, Judah and the priests went out to greet him, just as the Lord said. Now, the Phoenicians and the Babylonians who were with Alexander in, in the army were really excited because they hated the Jews. And Alexander was really mad. And he'd promised that they could rape and plunder and torture anyone they wanted to and destroy the city. And they were really happy about this. This was really going to be fun. Now, something weird happened. Alexander changed his mind. Oh, when the young conqueror saw the open city and the priesthood all arrayed in white, with Judah clothed in the fine purple and scarlet with the Levitical turban on his head and bearing the golden name of God on his brow, he dropped from his horse to the ground. Alone and with great reverence, he approached Judah and saluted him. Then the priest with one voice saluted Alexander back and encircled him like he was a king. The jaws of Alexander's commanders and all the Jew haters fell open. Then they were mad. They knew that Alexander could be very unpredictable, and he was at times, but this was way too much. Carefully, they sent General Parmenio up to him to ask why he was saluting Jews worshipfully, as though they were divine, when it was obvious they were surrendering. Alexander turned to his men and said, I am not worshiping Jews, nor their high priest, but that God who honored this man with his holy priesthood. And then he said this to his men. When I was still in Macedonia, trying to consider how to conquer Asia, this man's God came to me and told me to make no delay, but to boldly go, and that he would conduct my army and give the empire of Persia into my hands. And that great God was dressed just as this high priest is now. Oh, I have wow. searched, I know it, I know it. I have searched the priesthood of men, and there has been no other arrayed the same as the God in heaven but this man. So that explains, sorry to interject so rapidly, but that explains why he so needed to get into the temples of these different yes. cults and sects and, yes. and religions. He wanted to see who was a follower of the God 
He knew that's right, the true God. And he said this last part, I know now that I will indeed conquer Darius and destroy the Persians. Everything else I plan to do will happen by God's decree. But now it was confirmed. It was more than faith. It was knowledge. Once again, the most powerful man in the world witnesses that Jehovah is God. Once again, we've seen it now twice before, one more time. Alexander knew that Jehovah was God. And that he had a job to do. Yes, he's been commissioned by Jehovah to conquer, to bring down Persia, which is exactly Nebuchadnezzar's dream and exactly Daniel's dream. So what happened next is the high priest took his right hand and he paraded Alexander into Jerusalem. Their first stop was the rebuilt temple. And afterwards, they brought out the book of Daniel, which they had. And they showed Alexander the passage in it that talked about the he-goat of Greece who would destroy the ram of Persia. Now, this is another vision that we haven't yet explored exactly right now, but it was in the book. Needless to say, Alexander was in complete ecstasy. He was so excited. He knew the greatest of the Greek symbols in their culture was the he-goat. And here it was said that the he-goat would crush Persia. He believed, of course, that this was him. Uh, this is fascinating. So the Lord was using symbology. He used symbols that would be understood in their time, just like the torso of brass wouldn't have been completely appreciated until the armies would have come over the mountains and they would have seen a wall of brass and understand at that moment. And here again, here it was, hidden in scriptures for all those years. And Alexander could see it plainly for himself. He was deeply touched. It'd be a little bit like one of us doing something wonderful in some foreign country and have them come out with a prophecy about the great bald eagle that was going to be a blessing to the people. It would touch your heart for sure. So Alexander, being deeply touched, called all the Jews around him, and they were very respectful to him. And he said, what can I do for you? Oh, wow. So their city was good as destroyed his mind and the minds of his armies, and now a complete 180. And they said to Alexander, we would love to be able to live the law of Moses our way anywhere in your empire, including having the Sabbath day holy that we could take off from work and worship. Alexander said, granted. And then they said, we would also like to serve in your army if you'll let us, but we want to serve under the conditions that would not go against Moses's law. And he said, granted. Everything they wanted, he granted. And they had a great deal of freedom for a time under Alexander that was most beloved after they'd had such a hard time under both Babylon and Persia. Likewise, the word spread out to all of the Jewish settlements in the area that they were to treat Alexander this way. And every time he came into a Jewish city, they treated him with such reverence and kindness. He just loved them. And what's so funny is that when the Samaritans, who had been moved into that area, who were not Jews, later found out that, boy, this is the way to be, this began some of their beginning to act and pretend to be Jews, which would later annoy the Lord because they saw how well it worked and they wanted to be protected too under Alexander. So that's kind of a fun little side note. So now the Jews have gone from nearly complete destruction at the hands of the Babylonians to a type of freedom, subservience to Cyrus. And now in almost a Greek tradition, welcomed into the empire of Greece. So they've definitely are starting to rebound from their terrible decimation at the hands of Babylon. They're, they're, they're coming back. This is going to set them up later for the league contract that comes into Rome, which is going to be a sad thing later. I do suspect that the high priest probably skipped over the part of Daniel that said that this young goat, who's also connected to the leopard with four heads, would die young and be gone. 
The part that I'm sure he did read was Daniel 8, 20 and probably 22, where it said, The ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the he-goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Alexander did have coins printed during his reign that had the goat horns on it. And you oh, do wonder if perhaps... If that's what inspired us. He, he took that that symbolism on even more profoundly at that point. It wouldn't surprise me. We do know the story. Alexander continued to conquer the world. He ended up getting injured in India, in that area, and came back to Babylon, which he had made his capital. Most people don't really know that. He died in the city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And as he was laying there dying, the tradition says that his generals gathered and they wanted to know who would be the next leader. Who's gonna take over? You haven't said. And he said he would leave it to his strongest. Ah, so he'd almost, it was almost a challenge to them to determine for themselves. I think so. Of course, what they did, which was wonderful, instead of fighting it out, which he probably would have liked, they actually just divided the empire into four. One of them took Macedonia and Greece in the west. Another took the Hellespot of Asia in the north. Another took Syria in the eastern empire. And of course, probably the most famous that we know of is Ptolemy, who took over Egypt and became eventually the new pharaoh and the rise of the Ptolemies. It was also where Alexander had built the great library of Alexandria, where he intended to pull all of the world's knowledge into one place. He did die at the age of 33, and it was in his masculine prime. But perhaps his greatest legacy is that he spread Western analytical thinking into the entire world. And it is both a blessing and a curse to us today. So much of our culture today is based on Greek thinking. The good parts of it we celebrate. We also have some of the wicked parts of it. One of the things people don't really realize is that the Greeks had fully embraced Luciferianism and they did it by calling themselves Hellenists. The word hell, which we use today for evil, derives from Hellel, which is Lucifer's Hebrew name. The Hellenistic part of Greece was in honor of Lucifer, whom they believed at that time to be the god of light. So as you're saying that the Greeks might have brought newness of thought, new ways of looking at the world, probably even scientific principles, and yet with that also came the great tragedy that is wicked traditions that uh, seem to hang on no matter what we do. I know this is a bit of a sidestep, but if you really want to understand Zechariah, and this will be in volume four, Zechariah and the Teachers of Righteousness, and particularly this concept of Jehovah arriving as a king. The secret to understanding that is that Zechariah was trying to foretell Alexander coming in, which you'll see here with the high priest Judah, that they were to treat Alexander as a model of when their true savior and redeemer would come. That's one of the clues. If you know that and you study it in Zechariah, and if we get to it, we'll study it together, you'll understand that scripture more clearly. The Lord was using Alexander as a model for the Jews to understand when their true king came, they were to treat him accordingly and he would be their true savior. Well, and it shows too in the scriptures that there were some in Jerusalem at the time of the Lord's life that did understand that. They welcomed him at the gate as if he was a conquering hero. Well, it looks like we have run out of time for this episode. What's next is the legs of iron. So that will be in our next episode. Until then, thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, please send them to us. We can be contacted through the website, gospelfeastbooks.com. 
and gospelfeastbooks at gmail.com. And until our next podcast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you.